Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I am Ross Gallagher and in today's episode, we are asking how global can Islamic finance become? Islamic finance is an industry sector with faith and ethical practices at its very core. It's also a sector which has moved from a regional niche into a booming industry valued at over 2.88 trillion US dollars, uh, estimated by industry experts. As the majority of the 1.8 billion global Muslim population lives outside of the GCC in Malaysia, which are the main hubs of Islamic finance to date, the industry still has lots of room to expand across the world. So how global is Islamic finance? What are the challenges in its way? And how does the future look? We'll discuss all of this and more in today's show. But first, a brief word from our sponsors. Let's face it, cards were not designed for online. Payments can take days to settle, hurting customer loyalty, while high fraud, clunky checkouts and expensive fees means millions in missed revenue. At TrueLayer, we've made instant payments available for businesses across Europe and the UK, so you can cut costs, fight fraud, and get money moving faster. To learn more, visit truelayer.com forward slash payments. Fintech Insider presents After Dark Ripping Up the Rulebook, a special recording of Fintech Insider live from New York City, and we want you to join us. On Tuesday, May 24th, we'll be looking at DeFi, punk rock, embedded finance and hip-hop, and breaking down how they've all disrupted their industries. Head to 11fs.com forward slash afterdark for all the info and to get your free ticket. That's at 11fs.com forward slash afterdark. See you in New York. Okay, let's get started. Um, as ever, I am not alone, and I am very lucky to be joined by a panel of amazing guests who can shed some light on all things Islamic finance. Uh, first off, I'm joined by Arib Siddiqui, uh, founder and CEO of Kestrel. Arib, welcome to the show. Um, can you give our audience maybe a brief overview of uh, your background and also uh, the, the the sort of background, the context behind Kestrel? Sure. Hi, Ross. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Uh, so Kestrel is the Muslim money app. We're an app that helps Muslims who want to grow their wealth without having to compromise on their beliefs. We do that by helping Muslims at every stage of the personal financial journey, from building a budget using our open banking technology to automatically saving into pots of money to actually providing uh, our users with halal investment options as well on top of that. Kestrel was born out of a personal frustration that I've, I've lived with my entire life in the UK of not having uh, halal banking and investment uh, solutions. Uh, so myself and a friend from university decided to put our heads together and try and do something about that. So fast forward a couple of years later, uh, and now we have two offices in the UK and in Malaysia, and we're serving people in both markets. So that's Kestrel. Awesome. Um, and it's a, yeah, it's a really cool uh, proposition with lots of really useful features. So I'm sort of, yeah, looking forward to sort of pulling on all of your uh, expertise that you've sort of picked up through that uh, through that journey, Arib. So great to have you on. Also making a, uh, <laughs> a very welcome return to FinTech Insider, we have Samim Abedi, Chief Investment Officer of Wahed. Uh, Samim, welcome to the show. What can you tell us about yourself and also about Wahed? Uh, thank you for having us again. Um, well, Wahid is a uh, Sharia compliant robo advisor with operations in the US, the UK, Malaysia, and uh, many other regions in the world. Our primary goal was to provide um, access to the retail investor to Sharia compliant investment options in the long only space 
Um, in addition to that, you know, we, we use both third-party funds, but we've also launched uh, a few of our own funds and, and proprietary products. And so we're, we're looking to really rethink the Islamic investment landscape um, with, with sort of access in the retail space being, being our primary tenant. Awesome. And I know we're going to get into some of the particulars around those sort of Islamic investments as we go through the show. So that's going to be great to have you on. Um, and last but by no means least, uh, we have another welcome return for Naheem Bassa, the Senior Vice President and Head of Strategy and Digital Transformation at Bank Al Jazeera. So Naheem, great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us again. Um, same same question to you as, 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 as our other esteemed guests, maybe a little bit of background on yourself, just to remind our viewers and then also on uh, Bank Al Jazeera and what you guys are up to. Hey, it's great to be back and even more to all your listeners. Wishing you and your family a prosperous year ahead and may all your good deeds be rewarded. Uh, as you mentioned, it's great to be back. Bank Al Jazeera is a 47-year-old institution in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and is a fully Sharia-compliant boutique bank uh, offering end-to-end financial services, products and services. My role in Bank Al Jazeera is quite far-reaching, ranging from financial plans to digital transformation, market trends, uh, fintechs. But really, it's looking at the core purpose of the bank and how we deliver on the promise of enriching lives through financial well-being. This is really exciting for us, uh, as it's at the apex of ESG, Environment, Society and Governance, Digital and Customer Needs. So looking forward to today's discussion with the the fellow participants. Excellent. Thanks so much, Naheem. All right, great. Well, look, let's just uh, let's dive straight in. Let's look at that question that we sort of posed in the intro, how global is Islamic finance today? Maybe I'll stick with you just before we, we start to, to go into a little bit more detail around uh, so, so some of the, uh, the particulars in this space. Maybe you can just give our listeners a sort of very brief explainer for those that might not be um, all that familiar with Islamic finance, just, uh, just what it is that we actually mean. Yeah, great. You know, Islamic banking has probably steadily gained traction for over the last 50 years, right? I think there are over 100 Islamic financial institutions globally. Uh, recent developments in the UK have seen new fintechs, right, such as Wahed, Kestrel, who, uh, who we have on the call today, uh, Nomo, and Alif. These fintechs have arisen from the US, Malaysia, Kuwait, and even the UK themselves, indicating the growing demand, right, and appetite for Islamic banks. So it's quite a booming sector, right? But what exactly is Islamic banking, right? Is it only for Muslims? Is it 100% Sharia? Um, often the term Sharia compliant is to denote the ethical standards, right? And the transparency around um, your products and services offered as Islamic, right? So Islamic at its core is really about being interest-free, asset-based, and ethically driven, right? And it has many similarities with other religions. So it's not just for Muslims. Um, to make it real for people, rather than quoting a level of interest, Sharia-compliant banks will quote you an expected profit rate. And this is precisely because Islam teaches you that money has no intrinsic value, and so you cannot charge or earn interest on it. Instead, the money has to be put to work, which I think is a very hot topic, right, if you think about uh, money and investments and savings globally, right? And you get a share of that profit. This is different to commercial banks, which are, you know, are probably more interest-based, and have, don't have many preconditions into which industry they support or invest in. Sharia-compliant banks, for example, cannot invest in gambling or alcohol firms. Hopefully that was a short and brief introduction to, uh, to Islamic banking. No, I think that was a, a perfect introduction to Islamic finance and I think the, the, the principles that sort of uh, 
they sort of govern the space. Um, and there's, um, Naheem, already you've given us, I think, several different jumping off points. Um, Samim, I'm interested maybe in your uh, your opinion. I know Naheem mentioned the sort of, um, is it for Muslims, is it not for Muslims? Um, and maybe a little bit more broadly, actually, how would you describe the sort of um, the average Islamic finance customer, maybe sort of in 2022? And maybe has that changed um, as time's gone on? Yeah, sure. I I, I think uh, it's important to sort of uh, dissect the term and, and break it down into component parts, because often it's, it's used as an umbrella term to mean a lot of different things that actually might not really be similar at all. So in our space, it, it obviously means Islamic investment options, right? Um, investing in companies and, and equities or, or other asset classes that uh, are permissible, um, just to, to sort of keep it high level. On the institutional space or the banking space, you know, obviously there's, there's a sort of a a punitive view on interest-based revenue. Lending is, is, is very punitive in the space. Um, and then contractually in sort of the commerce space, it refers to sort of having clear terms and contracts, settlement terms, physical assets, asset-based leasing sort of agreements. So uh, it's all these things um, sort of coupled together in this umbrella of Islamic finance. So, you know, it depends who you are. If I'm a corporate client, it might refer to sort of a banking relationship or an underwriting relationship on on corporate debt. Uh, if I'm a retail investor, it might refer to the types of companies I'm trying to invest in. Um, more often than not, I think we get sort of caught up in the minutia of the actual rules and the screens. Um, but high level, these aren't really rules for the sake of being difficult. They're really trying to solve a problem. In the investment space, very simply, you know, and we'll get into the ESG a little bit later and, and what conventional secular ESG is trying to do. But in our space, uh, you know, very basically, if I can't own something in a, in a retail brick and mortar fashion, I probably shouldn't generate investment returns from those equities as well, right? It's a very analogous thing. If I'm a shareholder in a company, but I couldn't actually open that sort of company in real, real life, right? Um, uh, those things are, are, tend to have sort of an inherent friction in them. Um, so high level, I think that it means a bunch of different things, and it's probably more an umbrella term than than that. So an Islamic finance client can be, you know, a, a pension, a sovereign wealth fund, a retail investor, um, someone that has a deposit base and a savings base. And I think all these things are connected where in conventional banks, if I had to sum it up, it would be deposits and lending. In the Islamic finance space, I think the, the savings, the investments, um, and the contractual side of things are all sort of linked in that ecosystem. Yeah, no, again, such helpful context. I think, um, Arib, I know that you guys are sort of playing in the space with with a variety of the, these different types of products, right? Halal sort of savings products and sort of looking at the, uh, the sort of ethical investment space. I'm keen to understand maybe the you mentioned in your intro some of the, the, the frustrations that you had. What are some of the, the problems that, that you guys are looking to solve um, for, for, your, for your customers, for your consumers? Yeah, I think the thing which really jumped out at me, which uh, Samim mentioned as well, is I think in the past, large Islamic banks have really focused on that minutiae of the detail as to, you know, uh, this is exactly what is halal and this is what is haram. When in reality, you're forgetting about uh, what the real value to, to the end customer is meant to be. People want to be able to buy houses affordably without feeling like they want to compromise on their beliefs. People want to be able to go to university and take a loan out without feeling like, you know they're they're not adhering to to their religion. They're feeling like they're having to co- having to compromise on on something, and that I think is being lost in the conversation, or has been lost with some of the older Islamic banks which have existed in the UK. Growing up, for me, um, when it came to opening up a bank account, 
there were two major Islamic banks in, in the UK. But looking at them, it was just sort of a real turnoff looking at their websites. They didn't really have an app to uh, worth speaking of. Uh, the user experience was was very, very poor. And it just felt like compared to some of the other conventional banks, Barclays, uh, and NatWest, I felt like I was giving up something or paying for something because of my religion. Some people jokingly refer to it as the Muslim tax, uh, which you have to you have to pay where by uh, by going down that route. Um, so that that was one aspect. When talking to our users, there is more of a a fundamental trust issue as well, where because people get caught up in the well, you know, instead of interest, we're calling it profit. We're doing this. We're doing that. A lot of people have a misunderstanding that, oh, Islamic banks are really just taking uh, specifically haram or forbidding concepts like interest and relabeling them, calling it by another name, and they're charging us more for for that. Um, so I think in, rea- when re- in reality, it's really not the case at all. Things are being structured very, very differently. And I think the messaging isn't coming across at all. So I think it's a trust factor. I think it's a, a user experience problem. And also, at the end of the day, a cost uh, factor as well, where things just tend to be far too expensive for the typical retail consumer. I'm interested in that point. Is that because just on the back end, because of everything that we've just talked about, those processes, settlement, et cetera, are they just more complex? And so... They, they ultimately work out as, as more expensive. So maybe I'll come to you on that one. Yeah, you know, complex maybe from, from a theoretical standpoint, but I think the key term here is sort of relevance, right? What is the relevance to the average user? And, you know, we get into the academic arguments and sort of the jurisprudence, but it's a bit like constitutional law or something that would be debated in parliament in the UK. You know, it, it's very probably interesting for the people in the space um, it's probably very nuanced and there's there's centuries of evolution and academic thought and something to how we got to this point. But for a retail user and, and your average person, quote unquote, um, really the issues that matter is uh, how do I generate wealth from sort of a job that, that's okay? How do I save things? And if we're talking about, for example, investments, right? If you have $50,000 in investments at 10% a year, that's 5,000 as a potential return, or you could potentially save $50,000 a year off a $120,000 job. Savings is a lot more relevant to you than, than investments, let's say. But you know, getting a house, compounding wealth, and then passing wealth down to your children, these are the things people are really focused on. So I think we've maybe focused too much on sort of the under the hood and, and, and you know, the, the complexities of, of the theoretical things versus the, the practicality and the relevance. I think relevance is really the key term here. How do we make this applicable to most people? Yeah, I think that's that's such a lovely point. It's a really nice way to flip it. Nahim, I can see that you're you're sort of nodding away um, in absolute agreement. So keen to bring you in. Yeah, I, I fully agree uh, with what my, my fellow colleagues have said. Right. Uh, firstly, I don't think there's an average customer. Right. Uh, I, I think that term is, is gone. What I can say is that there's probably like three types that are emerging. Right. Especially in Saudi Arabia. Uh, there's this up-and-coming vibrant female market, right? You'll see a lot more females entering the workforce, right? So they have their own special needs and uh, and demands, right? There's this more mature middle market, right? You know, how do I get a home longer? How do I find a home for, for, for my families, right? And a generation, I think, aiming to look at wealth transfer and management for future generations, including building or leaving a legacy, right? What I can say with utmost conviction is that the market is growing, right, in Islamic finance, right? And it's, it's a lot more focused on the underserved, right, in this market. And so when I say underserved, I'm talking about, it's not about having money, right, it's, or not having money. It's about saying, people ask, 
I mean, I get asked every day, where should I invest? Should I invest in the stock market? Should I invest in locally or foreign, right? Property or a real estate fund, right? And it's those sort of needs that we need to really get into. Yes, no, absolutely. And I think that's really nice. So I'm keen to sort of dive into um, the markets growing. We can see from the panelists that we've got on the, on the show, we're, we're seeing disruption. We're starting to see innovation. I'm keen, maybe, maybe Arib, I'll bring you in first and then Samim, we can look at the US. But Arib, how are, you, how are you seeing the UK market sort of evolve, innovate in this space? And what are some of the bigger changes? Yeah, so I think since 2018, 2019, and during lockdown as well, there's been an explosion of the term Islamic fintech because of all of these new tech-focused companies that are that are coming out there. Uh, ourselves, we started in late 2019, early 2020. And since then, there's been uh, a whole explosion of Islamic digital banks, people coming out with a card linked to an app, uh, people coming out with crowdfunding organizations uh, where you can invest into property or into small businesses as, as a group. Um, so so it's, definitely, it's definitely grown significantly. I think in terms of real innovation, though, Unfortunately, sometimes with Islamic fintech or Islamic finance in general, you see a trend whereby sometimes it's a concept which is maybe two, three, four, even five years old, and they're slapping the Islamic label on top of it, where it's a business model which has been tried and tested in the conventional model, and then now they're just trying to put an Islamic twist on it and putting it out there for Muslims. And sometimes it works, but sometimes I think that's yet to be proven. I think a really good example are Islamic digital banks and coming up with a card. So, for example, with Kestrel, our original business model was, well, let's do a sort of monzo for Muslims. We'll come out with a debit card, we'll put it out there, and we'll say, you know, this is your Islamic digital bank. When we started testing that in, in beta with our original users, the feedback that was coming back was, this is a nice to have but in reality, it's going to take a lot to move me away from my Barclays, from my HSBC, or even from my Monzo account, which I'm very happy using. I'm using a current account and not collecting any interest. If I'm getting interest, I'm giving it away to charity. So I need something else. And ultimately, what I'm trying to do is grow my wealth, right? Um, just exactly the concept we've talked about already. How do I get that house? How do I give money to my children? How do I achieve those goals quicker? And that's basically time and time again, what we were coming back to. So I think we're starting to see more and more innovation on that side of things. Wahid, of course, leads, leading the charge. Uh, and they've been huge inspirations for us for us at Castro as well. Excellent. No, I think that segues us probably um, quite, quite neatly into uh, the, the challenges section. So if we're quite happy just to sort of jump straight in, maybe um, Samim, I'll just come to you first in terms of picking up on some of the points that we've just we've just made around some of those consumer challenges and maybe some 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 kind of thoughts that you have in that space yeah i think for us you know uh, we we can't talk about investment in our space without talking about literacy and i think primarily our community when i say our community you know it depends on the region we're talking about in, in the uk for example it's, it's large portions of the south asian community but uh their wealth has really been bifurcated trifurcated between sort of cash under the mattress real estate and private businesses right this is how this is how they've sort of generated wealth and and people are married to concepts that have worked for them historically. So, you know, we'll see the older generation saying, just buy property. Perhaps we missed that wave, right? In sort of the younger demographic, we missed that sort of boom period. Uh, with that said, the public market side is a, a little more opaque, a little more abstract, and people don't really know. And I, I do think there's a there's a bit of a tendency in our communities by sort of the explosion of WhatsApp groups on, on crypto and things 
of sort of how can I hit a home run and triple my money overnight. And I think the element of patience and long-term and focus uh, uh, in terms of the compounding side is something that's actually very similar to, to your normal conventional investor in our space. And so that's always a challenge, right? Because people uh, in our space do tend to chase returns. Um, many of us haven't seen a down market and we've only, we're only four months in this year and, and people are, are hurting. And, you know, other periods in, 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 in history have lasted many years. So, you know, that can really break the, the sentiment of a consumer in terms of not believing in something. But if you kind of keep your, your eyes towards the five, 10 year mark, things tend to be okay, right? We don't know where things are going tomorrow, but we know eventually it's, it's up and to the right. And uh, just kind of reinforcing that. And I think education and emotional temperament actually have a lot more value than necessarily being sort of a brilliant investor that can kind of dive in and out of things. And so, you know, teaching customers that patience, um, teaching customers that trust um, are, are very important in the space. I do think, you know, it, it's interesting for us because we have a seat from the U.S., the U.K., other areas of Europe, um, India, Malaysia. So you tend to see the tendencies of, of, of Muslims in different regions, right? And so, you know, some regions are, are a lot more kind of open and they see the bigger picture. Other ones sort of are focused on this moral absolutism. And if, you know, if we look at the example of a stock, uh, there's probably no conventional company listed on an exchange that doesn't hold deposits in an interest bearing account, right? So by that lens, people would say, well, I can't touch any of this stuff. And so a lot of the scholarly guidelines have really taught us thresholds and not to look at things in absolutes, right? Even if we look at the, the analogy of tahur and, and water and purification, right? If, if something impures in a glass of water, you probably won't drink it. If it's in a lake, it probably doesn't really move the needle too much. So teaching people to think in holistic, big picture uh, items and having patience, I think is always the challenge in the conventional, but, but we're no exception to those trends. Yeah, uh, that point about patience is such an interesting one. And I think especially when you think in terms of like, you know, the social media generation, we're all sort of like used to getting instant feedback, instant outcomes. And actually, we're sort of moving, I would say, probably in the wrong direction with regards to patients um, in sort of many respects. Um, Nahim, I'm keen to sort of bring you in and get your thoughts on, uh, yeah, some of these challenges. And I know, again, you were sort of very much uh, engaging with the other uh, panelists' points. Yeah, I think they 100% uh, are on the money, right? I think... I think there's also another lens, you know, if you're coming from a, a, a banking perspective, right, and you're thinking, of, okay, I want to start up a, a Islamic fintech or I want to start up an Islamic digital-only bank, right? I think, you know, firstly, you've got some good, strong tailwinds in your favor, right? But I think some of the key challenges are, number one, right, you almost have to balance the Sharia-compliant regulations that the, the colleagues were talking about, right, which means you need a Sharia board comprised of uh, uh, Islamic scholars, right? which, you know, you have to be really diligent in how you pick and uh, the, the ones that are really understand um, this concept, right? Uh, and then you almost have to marry it up to the standard banking regulations. So you've got that overhead and that uh, friction point that you need to address, right? Uh, on the other hand, you know, health approaches end up being more robust, right? But you'll need the deep knowledge and expertise, right? I think secondly, and I think we've touched on this earlier, right? There's a lot of education, right, that needs to happen, whether it's financial literacy or even just the positioning of Islamic uh, banking, right, or Islamic financial services, right, along that value chain. First, you don't have to be Muslim, and also what are you looking, seeking to do, right? Um, 
I think that's the, 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 that's the second biggest uh, challenge I think that, that exists out there at this moment in time. Awesome. Yeah, such such interesting insights. I think one of the challenges as well that we wanted to look at was um, around those for women in the um, Islamic finance space. So to find out about this, we reached out to Samina Akram, um, managing partner of Samak Ethical Finance, who unfortunately couldn't be with us today, but did send us this clip. Challenges women face in the Islamic finance space are really no different from the challenges women face in the conventional finance space. Around 2005, I entered the Islamic finance sector. I was heading the Islamic finance wealth management platform at Merrill Lynch. Now, when I first entered the industry, I would attend events or read articles, and you would really hardly see any female role models. However, over the years, government and wider industry-focused initiatives, especially in countries like Malaysia and some parts of the Middle East, we are actually now beginning to see a slow change. My own challenges as a female banker and seeing the obstacles other women faced inspired me to launch the world's first forum focused on women empowerment for our sector. We started with 30 key members, and today we have over 10,000 members in over 30 countries, with several global financial firms supporting us. Yeah, so it's an an interesting point, um, sort of tying it back, I suppose, to the world of traditional finance um, and some of the challenges that we've seen there. Nahim, I think you mentioned the, the the opportunities that are being presented by sort of women coming into the, the workplace. I think you were talking about it more in terms of like capturing that in terms of market share and being able to service those customers. But again, how important is it to be able to bring in alternative perspectives into the, the sort of banking environment in terms of actually helping to service those customers as well? Yeah, I think uh, it's the nail on the head, right? I think there's a lot of pent up demand, right, and need. Right, that need to be met. Uh, typically, right to open up a bank account previously, you'd have to get a, a male family member to to do that. Right, so you can you can really see that 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 hurdle, and then you'd get the advice from your uncle, your brother, etc. Uh, which not to say it's bad. It's just that that you obviously want to take some control and having dependence over your money. Right, how you're earning it, how you're saving, how you're investing in it. Right, I think there's also this other challenge. Right, about you know. What exactly is make something a halal haram, right? And you can get into the nitty gritty of it, right? Especially since most of the scholarly texts are in Arabic, right? Uh, or published Arabic journals. So it's not really widely disseminated. It's not really there that everybody can get into. I think if you look at some of the regulators, they've done some good work in this, in this part to enable these access to this product. I'm talking specifically in, in the Middle East. If you look at the UAE, you look at Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, right? Um, I think they've done some very good work in enabling access to these uh, uh, these products and services to, the, to these new markets. And I think there's two growing markets, like you said. Number one is the, uh, the female segment, primarily because they're going to be an increasing part of the Workforce, if you look at the Saudi 2030 vision, for example, right, it's really booming. This is some really aspirational targets, and that comes with its own um, set of uh, ambitious driver. But you're also getting a lot more, I would say, SME businesses, which are also female-owned, right, entering the market. So you're getting into another segment, right, more on the, 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 the corporate institutional banking side. Right? And the third one, I think, is around, there's still a lot of work being developed by the migrant labor force here, right? So how do you enable access for them? Right? That, that's really key. And a lot of the population comes from the Southeast Asian markets, right? Which are very much into this ethical Islamic banking propositions, because that's how they've been raised. Yeah. And Arif, I'm interested to understand just from your 
perspective. I know we've sort of talked about the intricacies of setting up a, a Sharia council to sort of certify that the products and the services being offered are in fact Sharia compliant. What's your experience around that and trying to do that in a sort of market like the UK where that's not necessarily, I suppose, the the, the sort of expected norm? So I'll be honest, we use uh, Amana Advisors, which is a really good Sharia advisory consulting service led by Mufti Faraz Adam. He is very well known in the Islamic finance and fintech space specifically, uh, known for weighing in on issues from crypto to the metaverse to NFTs to all, all that kind of good stuff. Whenever we are coming up with a new product, whether it's our budgeting tool or our Kestrel savings pots or eggs, as we call them, or investment marketplace, the delays have always been from a technical perspective, you know, whatever we're planning, we always have to times by two. And, and that's in reality, uh, how long it's going to take. The Sharia screening and the, the Sharia certification aspect of it is often the quickest uh, the quickest kind of process on it. Uh, I think it comes from how experienced the Sharia advisor is, how many cases they've seen as well. If it's something entirely new and foreign to them, they'll have to take a lot of time researching, getting other opinions. So I think that there are different kinds of Sharia certification and more and more fintechs and finance organizations are moving towards those who are pretty much in the know and are able to to weigh in uh, on on these kinds of things. Yeah. And then, Samir, final word to you in this section. I know you mentioned previously about sort of not necessarily dealing in absolute and sort of acknowledging some of the, the nuance that sits in this space. I'm keen to understand your perception around sort of regulation, I guess, particularly regulation in markets like the US as an example. How comfortable are they regulating Islamic compliant financial products and services? And how much of a barrier this potentially is or, or, or isn't? You know, I think it, the regulations, I mean, so much of our pitch to clients uh, centers around trust, right? And so I think having some sort of deposit insurance in the UK and the US actually enhances uh, the credibility of a product and, and doesn't necessarily detract from it. In terms of them being able to regulate kind of the Sharia space, I think that requires in-house experts uh, to be able to really speak to the nuances of it. So I think there is some acknowledgement that, um, you know, that's not necessarily their forte to really delve into issues of, of legal opinion on, on certain matters, you know, particularly from the regulators, but they do want to make sure you are doing what you're saying you're, you're going to do, right? That, that there's a consistent alignment there. So, so far, I've seen that that's really the focus on regulation. It's not necessarily say, well, you, you know, you, you decided that 5% was an impermissible threshold, but, you know, the SEC coming at you saying, but what about this hadith? I think that's kind of outside their, their wheelhouse right now, nor do I think they're interested in really getting into the minutia of faith-based investing guidelines. For us, you know, the, the regulation isn't necessarily an issue on the Sharia compliance base. It's to me, uh, Sharia compliance is really, you know, one of the adage and idioms in Islam is sort of forbid the bad and promote the good. And I think the, reg the Sharia screens really just forbid the bad. They're kind of a bare minimum, right? You get rid of the things you can't do, but you're not necessarily talking about, well, what is good, right? What is what is something that we should do? So I think the challenge for us is thinking beyond kind of the paradigm of don't do this, don't do that. Because I think from a, a body of text perspective, probably, you know, I've had scholars tell me five to 10% of really our, our the tenets of the religion are really legalistic. The rest are really kind of, you know, a higher level, or I would say sort of a little more open to interpretation and stuff like that. But I think we get so focused on kind of don't do this, do this, that it's not such a mechanical exercise. There's a bigger picture of what are you trying to achieve here? Um, 
you know, the, the focus is on speculation and, and not being able to day trade and stuff like that isn't trying to be difficult. It's trying to say, don't, don't gamble with your money on things that are uncertain, right? We don't want you to ruin yourself. We talk about addictions to sort of drugs and, and, and other substances, but the gambling addictions, I think is something we sweep under the rug a little bit. So there is a wisdom to this and there is a problem that's trying to solve. Um, and I think we do ourselves a disservice a little bit to kind of focus on like, do this, do that, because it's not, it's meant to give you kind of guiding posts, not necessarily always kind of step-by-step things, right? These are new territories. And, and, and so I'll just, I'll, I'll say that on, on, on the regulation piece. Yeah, I think that's really nice. And it starts to probably move us into some of the, uh, the opportunity space. But I think that's, you know, the, the fact that that conversation needs to be fluid and that you need to sort of, um, yeah, like the, the, from the regulatory perspective, accepting that this is where your expertise is, but inviting sort of input to uh, inform on those other things, I think is key. Um, Okay, so we're just going to take a quick pause here and we will be back very shortly. Did you know that the majority of people are investing in cryptocurrency through a taxable account when they could be using an IRA, that's an individual retirement account, and avoiding or deferring those taxes? With Alto Crypto IRA, you can invest in crypto without tax headaches, creating a free account in only minutes. Choose from over 150 coins and invest with as little as $10. That's right, only 10 bucks. No setup charges and no account fees. To open an Alto Crypto IRA with as little as $10, $10, just go to altoira.com forward slash insider. That's A-L-T-O-I-R-A.com forward slash insider. Okay, let's move on from the present challenges and let's look at what the future may hold for Islamic finance. So um, to me, it seems natural to sort of bring you back in here. Um, we touched on it earlier, um, and I know we sort of teased that we would talk about this. Um, what's your view in terms of what the the growing ESG movement? Um, what, what what can sort of Islamic finance learn learn from that? Yeah, I think uh, kind of like a a lot of the other elements of Islamic finance, being at the banking, being at the, the the structuring underwriting piece. I think you know it's beneficial and it behoove us to to sort of acknowledge wider trends going on, but it also you know benefit us not to be too reactionary and trying to sort of. Uh, emulate something, right? I think the ESG, I was at JP Morgan for many years and and ESG always came up, but there was never really a consensus in the conventional space of what it meant. But what does it mean? A, what does it mean? And B, what are you trying to achieve with ESG? If you ask some fund managers, they'll say, well, I will only invest in companies that are ESG. And, you know, excluding something like a, a major oil company from your portfolio, like Exxon's not really going to care. I don't think that'll change corporate behavior. Other people will say, well, no, um, we're going to buy companies that aren't ESG and we're really trying to force them on the right way through proxy voting and, and corporate actions, right? But the, the literature remains to be seen on whether that's effective in, in the larger cap space, maybe in the smaller companies. So I think the conventional space is also grappling with this question. So for us, I don't think we should be too quick to just rush to emulate and join the conversation, but really define it on our terms. To, to, to me, the, the Islamic finance space is actually quite easier to understand than this because um, if I can't generate revenue from a liquor store, I shouldn't own a liquor stock and, ge- and compound my wealth there. I'm not necessarily making a statement on changing the behavior of those companies or diminishing some sort of market liquidity. I'm saying I want to align my, my income and my livelihood with my compounding of my livelihood and my wealth. And bringing those two things into, into, into sync, I think, is our goal. Whether we can kind of do things that are more, uh, you know, more proactive 
I think is something we are trying to do. You know, we personally launched a fund that has ESG aware screens on it. We get to see companies that are, you know, through through a third party data source called Repris, uh, maybe engage in some more egregious practices. And so it's not that necessarily we may be changing their behavior, but it's that we don't really want to benefit from returns from a company that doesn't have practices that are uh, conscientious and, and ethical. And really, if for, for us, it's sort of aligning the, the internal with the external. Um, and, and remains to be seen whether we're going to extrapolate that and, and making bigger changes on it. But I think for us, we always sort of start, um, you know, uh, introspectively and, and internally, and then we kind of move outward. So um, that, that's the way I'm thinking about that space for us right now. Yeah, no, and and it's super nice. And I think, you know, Samim, you're exactly right. In many respects, Islamic finance is, is, is a lot more straightforward and easier to understand. Um, Naheem, keen, keen, keen to bring you in again because I can see that you're uh, vigorously in agreement. Yeah, I, I, I've just been doing a lot of work in this ESG space, right, uh, recently. Uh, and I've been speaking to some of my uh, network uh, globally around it. And I mean, ESG is effectively growing dramatically, I think, globally and especially in the Middle East, right? We've got the Saudi 2030 vision, we've got the Saudi Green Initiative, right, which is all around, you know, uh, transforming, moving in sustainability. I mean, the Crown Prince also recently put about 80, 80 billion into the um, uh, PIF to invest in non-oil industries, uh, which I expected to grow about three and a half to four percent, right? That's just on the non-oil side. Uh, in addition, I think we're seeing a lot more investors, fund managers, and consumers demanding a lot more of us, right, as institutions, right, the financial services, Islamic institutions. I always talk about my mum, right? My mum asked me about these things, right? So I have to explain to her, right, in a way that a non a non-financial services person is working at, right? But I think what we're really careful of doing is avoiding greenwashing. You know, uh, in the discussion so far, right, I think it's more about firstly making a, a contribution, right, because there's no common understanding around ESG besides maybe GRI, maybe the European banking standards around it. Locally, we have to dowel in the six principles, which is the stock exchange, but you also got the central bank and their sustainability risk and climate risk principles, right? So I think it's about, let's just start, right? Just make a, you know, an active step forward in the right way, get that understanding going. And I think the second thing, right, especially in the region, right, it's about tapping into the social movement that is happening, right, in, in, in terms of the reshaping of the fabric of society here, right? Uh, I mean, we mentioned female participation in the economy, right, and how we can enable this, right? So I think it's about really boiling down to the nuts and bolts that ESG has a lot of commonality with um, um, Islamic banking, especially on the trust and transparency side, right? So, you know, I always say use the mum test, right? Make it logical, make it easy to understand, and I think you'll be successful. Yeah, and, and I would argue that, I mean, those Sharia-compliant products offer a really compelling sort of value case for consumers as we all become more conscious of sort of our impact on society, et cetera. Areem, I'm we've touched on this a little bit already around the importance of trust, the importance of um, transparency education in terms of bringing the, the potential to bring Islamic finances to people that haven't always had access, unbanked, underbanked. Um, I'm keen to sort of hear your thoughts on, uh, I guess, how we're doing that, how we continue to do that and how that sort of evolves from here. Absolutely. So I think... With Kestrel, we've been really successful amongst two core user groups right now. Uh, young professional Muslims aged 22 to, to mid-30s who are starting out in their careers. They're starting to make a bit of money. Um, they may, might be first, second, third generation. 
And they're trying to really try and align their faith and their beliefs with their financial objectives and, and their goals in life. And we also do quite well with uh, students, 18 to 22, who are trying to you know, plan out and chart out their futures and get onto a job that they believe pays them well. And also they feel like they're adhering to their, their religion. The thing that I found is that in this space, you cannot operate um, like some traditional organizations. You have to be in as many different avenues in front of your in front of your users as possible. So weirdly, bizarrely, in ways I would never have imagined, making TikTok videos and me doing a silly dance or going viral and, and talking about stuff, uh, making Instagram posts and carousels and and going on stories and uh, it, it does much much better than say taking out a, a billboard in some cases or or getting some posters on on the tube all things that we've we've experimented with um and for some reason people tend to trust that more they feel like they have more of an insight as to who these people are who are running this company telling more about the story of you know how i myself faced this problem my whole life and then i decided to come together with a friend try and do something about this and get that out there it it's kind of says something to the influencer generation <laughs> where people want to know the face behind the company but that's really how trust seems to be be being formed uh, at the moment. There's also an element of, of education, absolutely. So, you know, we we have a lot of uh, buzzwords and expressions and things that we use at Kestrel, like invest, but tie your camel first, which is a very well-known phrase uh, <laughs> in, in Islam calling, uh, which talks about how you should trust in God, trust in Allah, but tie your camel first, which means make all preparations beforehand. And, you know, we, we did that to introduce the idea of budgeting and then saving for your short-term goals, building an emergency fund, all of these good aspects before you get obsessed with thinking about investing and investing into crypto, which is often what young people uh, want to do when they come to us. So I think trust and the idea of gaining trust is about moving very, very quickly in ways that you might not have anticipated before. That's really nice to me. Um, and I hope this isn't too tangential, but I wanted to kind of reframe the the conversation. You know, we started this off with talking about, well, the Muslim market, the Islamic finance industry is growing, right? And, and what do we mean it's growing really? Are we, do we mean that Muslims are becoming more educated and generating more wealth in Western countries. And so now they're a bigger part of Western consumer behavior because a fifth of the world's population has always been there, right? So uh, they didn't just pop out of nowhere and suddenly we need to cater to this demographic. Really, at the turn of the 21st century, we're either talking about regions that had struggled to shift from industrial production to service industry and maybe sort of the educational side or they were impacted by colonialism and then sort of they're trying to get out of that and really develop their countries now. And so, uh, you know, when we think about it, we think about access and, and catering to the rest of the world, but we're also talking about people that are becoming more and more central to their societies and to their communities in the West. And so now we have to pay attention to them because they have a lot of money that we have to, we have to kind of cater to. And so uh, the conversation is the same with, with, with sort of the women and in the GCC, you know, it's half the population, right? So it's something worth looking at now because there's, there's, there's power there. Um, so I just want to reframe in terms of, you know, it's growing and it's growing for certain reasons. Uh, the democratization of sort of mobile apps and the internet and giving people access, they don't have to go through necessarily gatekeeping institutions or, or personnel in the traditional family. They sort of have a direct line to it, right? And so I, I just want to kind of reframe that, that growth and expansion of this industry because it didn't come from nowhere. It was just people didn't weren't catered to. And it didn't make sense for a lot of people to invest the resources and the R&D into these regions. You know, a lot of the banks didn't bother. Maybe they'd have a Dubai office or an office sort of in, in the GCC, but 
they didn't really care about, you know, expanding into Malaysia or Indonesia, for example. So um, I think we are fortunate through through some of our platforms to be able to cater to these demographics a little more directly. And so that's why we're seeing the trends we're seeing. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, it's, it's a really, it's a really key point, actually. And, you know, assuming to your point on access, hopefully as we continue to sort of innovate in this space, we can continue to service more and more of those, those sort of unbanked and underbanked um, populations. I, 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 we've, we've more or less come to the end, but what I'd love to do is sort of quickly go sort of one by one and just get a, a really quick uh, sort of view from each one of you around what you're sort of optimistic about as we sort of stand here today with regards to Islamic finance. So, um, Nahim, let's let's start with you. Yeah, I think firstly, right, um, I think hopefully what I envision for Islamic finance is that it's more than a niche, right? It's about, you know, the unbanked, the underserved, right? Whether it's about existing products today, right, so enabling that access to it, or whether it's about, you know, buy now, pay later for, in microfinancing, especially for the migrant labor, labor force, including uh, new segments into uh, into the savings cycles, right? I think that's going to be really huge. Um, but I really think it's about how people are living their lives, right? And what they aspire to be in Islamic finance is very wholesome, right? Very clean, right? And it really addresses, you know, the real values and uh, and wants uh, wants uh, wants of customers. I mean, in the in in Saudi, right? Uh, I think. We've got two to three new digital banks that have just come in, right, just to address some of these needs, right, in the last one, which has gone to unicorn status. And there's like 150 fintechs here at this moment in time. So I think there's this mass movement, right, of trying to get Islamic uh, finance more broader, more people to understand it, more engagement, right, um, uh, in, into the broader economy, right. And I think that it's an exciting place to be, right? Um, we're also looking for talent, right? So if you want a place to, uh, to work and do some cool things, please inbox me at any time. Awesome. Nice, Naheem. Thank you. Harib, let's, uh, let's go to you. Same question. Yeah, I, I think the explosion of Islamic fintechs today um, is starting to lead to new opportunities for collaboration in two spaces. So first of all, collaboration between the new fintechs and the old guard of Islamic banks that have existed for a few decades now is something that I think I'm really, really excited about, where they have the capital and they have sometimes the brand presence, where where we newer fintechs don't always have that. Whereas as fintechs, we have the technical know-how, we can move agilely, and sometimes we have the trust of users that they don't have. So for example, in Malaysia, we're now working with one of the biggest Islamic banks over there to white label our solution, to offer it as a digital app for the first time to to their retail customers, which I think is really going to transform the relationship and the state of play uh, for, for these banks out there. But also we're seeing collaborations between Islamic fintechs and just conventional fintechs or, or conventional organizations. So some of the people who are housed on our marketplace are not specifically known for being Sharia compliant, but they do just happen to be so. So, for example, Stepladder, which uh, sets up saving circles for for communities and allows them to save towards a house deposit in a structure which many people uh, from certain communities know as committees or there's like a thousand uh, names for for this kind of this kind of structure or way home which is a gradual home ownership scheme these are all things which just happen to be sharia compliant uh, but they're now finding a market uh, within the muslim space which they never anticipated for before and we can facilitate making that happen so i think it's all about collaboration and working together to help ultimately the end user i love that Harib. thank you and uh, samin final word to you 
Sure, thank you. Um, I, I would sum up my optimism in, in three points. One is be, because we're much of our population centered around developing economies, we have huge demographic tailwinds behind us in terms of growing working age populations, whereas Japan and much of developed Europe and the US sort of has a shrinking working age population. And so we have demographic tailwinds and, and with that education and, and up and coming entrepreneurship. Um, the second piece of it is, you know, there's no longer kind of this gatekeeping culture of you have to go through an established Islamic institution to be Islamically, you know, relevant or Sharia compliant. There's many independent institutions to get certified and the access to, you know, funding, uh, SME funding or even sort of angel funding or venture funding has now been proliferated. And, you know, obviously some, some governments have also gotten on board with helping promote entrepreneurship in their countries. So, you know, the tem demographic tailwinds, the, the access to financing and the, and the culture of entrepreneurism. Um, the third thing I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic about is that, you know, anywhere kind of Muslims exist in, in the U.S. or the U.K., they, they tend to be some of the most educated people and professionals and sort of active members of their society that aren't merely reclusive, but are, but are actively involved in their communities, but also sort of dig their feet in and, and kind of know who they are. So I'm, I'm optimistic about what I'm seeing in the U.S. and Europe as far as how our community is behaving and how educated and how active and engaged they are civically. Um, but I will say the thing that encompasses all of this is you have to lead with excellence. It's not merely enough to be legal from an ethical perspective. Nobody ever bought something because it was permissible. You know, they bought something because it worked and it was excellent and it made their lives easier. And so I think the Sharia compliance of this has to be like a kind of a no-brainer, a duh comment. Like, obviously, it's Sharia compliant. But beyond that, it's excellent. It makes everybody's lives easier. And by the way, that's not just Muslims. And so I think you widen your scope and suddenly you multiply your, your market opportunity 5x. So it's pragmatic, but it's also, I think, the way we should do business. Um, it should no longer mean that if something's a Muslim or Islamic business, that it is sub-professional or there's a Muslim tax to kind of bring this conversation full circle, but rather that it means something else. It means a level of excellence that, that consumers should be able to expect. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I think, and it's the perfect way to end, actually, because there is lots to be optimistic about, lots to be excited about in terms of where this space goes from here but then also useful just to sound a sort of note of caution that says, actually, yeah, this needs to be done in a particular way if we're going to realize that. So I think perfect way to wrap up. And that does wrap up today's discussion. Uh, so thank you all so much for joining me. Um, let's go around the room and just sort of uh, give us a, an idea of where people can find out more about you guys and your companies. Samim, let's start with you this time. Sure. If you want more information, please go to wahidinvest.com and you can visit our pages for disclaimers, disclosures on our products, our applications and our funds. Awesome. Thanks, Amin. Arib? Sure, you can head over to kestrel.io to find out all about how to download Kestrel and what it could do for you. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me at Arib Siddiqui on LinkedIn as well. Excellent. And Naheem? Uh, you can find me at Naheem Gabasa on LinkedIn, Twitter, every basically social media site, and bankoutzero.com on, on, on the website, on our app, and all social media sites. Uh, hopefully, this will help for our listeners today, and thanks for having me. Awesome. My pleasure as always. And you can find me at Ross Gallagher 7 on Twitter. Uh, thank you for listening. And if you like what you've heard, uh, please do subscribe. Don't forget to leave a review. It does really help us to make it better and it helps others to find the show. As always, we'd encourage you to join the conversation. Do just find us on social media, search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcast at 11FS.com. Thanks very much. Goodbye.